welcome to episode 119 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Ricochet University School of Law and Institute of Cryptozoology. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and three-time runner-up for Red Lobster's Employee of the Month. And I am joined, as always, by the Butch and Sundance of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, Visiting Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush Administration. So, fellas, uh, as we start out, let me start here, actually. Who, between the two of you, has had the more exotic agenda since last we talked. Because Richard, I know you were in Mexico, but John, I'm aware that you had the rare privilege of getting to spend time with one Troy Senek. I assume you're still recovering from the glory of that experience. I'm just shocked that you dress that way in in public. You look like (laughs) Kenny Rogers in The Gambler. You show up hoity-toity discussion of high principle in New York City at the Harvard Club to argue about affirmative action and the Constitution, and you show up in cowboy boots and something that looked like an embroidered Persian rug on your stomach, (laughs) a.k.a. a vest. (laughs) What the hell is going on? So none of this is accurate. I I was not wearing cowboy boots when we met. I was, I was wearing some boots slightly like to the ankle, but not cowboy boots. Also, the vest, I don't know where you're drawing the Kenny Rogers analogy from. This the gambler. Was, this is what we call it. This yes, is an this age, was, this is yes, an age but, thing. You don't remember Kenny Rogers the gambler. No, he wears I, I do remember Kenny Rogers and the gambler, but you are making it sound as if I was doing dinner theater in Branson. This was a vest for a three-piece suit, John. No, it was a different color. What are you guys arguing about? <laughs> <laughs> Richard, break the tie for us. You are Law Talk's resident menswear expert. Vest with a suit, acceptable or no? Vest with a suit? Yes. It's acceptable in the aristocratic set of which you are a distinguished charter member. There you go. You hear that, John? Uh, Yeah. But on the other hand, people like you, if he wore a vested suit, everybody would sort of think about this as the young Lao trying to rise above his social station. (laughs) Yes. On the other hand, if I wore a suit, somebody would say, the man looks great in a tuxedo. Why is he slumming it? Exactly right. Well, you do most of your speeches in white tie and tails, as I recall. Uh, I, I do. Not only that, I often have a band behind me to play the interrupt whenever I take a pause. Um, uh, I think, in effect, that one of the nice things about being on radio is nobody sees me slouch when I talk. By the way, speaking of young louts, Richard, I, I want to get your uh, opinion on another matter of propriety for these sort of public appearances, because John did something at this event. He was, he was doing an event for – he was kind enough to do an event for us here at, at, at my home at the Manhattan Institute. Yeah. And John did something that I want to know if you have ever done. I'm convinced you haven't, but I want to know if you find it socially acceptable. So this is a pretty nice crowd, right, an intellectual discussion yeah. uh, around cocktail hour. John mounted the stage with a three-quarters full glass of scotch with him as he was speaking, acceptable or not. Well, and what did he do when he got on the stage? Drink it? Continue to drink it. Well, I think in effect it shows that he's a publicity hound of the highest <laughs> order. And, and since I like publicity hounds, um, let me put it to this way. I think it's unprecedented, but I'm envious of John for his moral courage and for his fantastic theatrical sense. John, can, I, am I def- can I defend myself? Not no, after a compliment like that, you can. I mean, I, I brought it up because I thought every time Troy would say something wrong, I, did, I would take a hit. Oh, well, John, you second, wouldn't have made By the end of the night, the drink was empty. Uh, well, I, mean, uh, well, I disagree with you. I think uh, Mr. Seneca is a master at not making stupid statements. His great skill is eliciting stupid statements from the two of us. <laughs> And on that note, we will pivot to that very task, Richard. So actually, I I, I run the risk of making a stupid statement up front Mm. because our producer instructed me moments before we started that we should talk about uh, Michael Cohen's testimony on the Hill today, which was the very day that we're recording this, just actually a few hours prior to this. Mm. I confess that for the sake of my sanity and because I didn't think that there would be much substance to be gleaned from it, I neither watched it 
nor read anything about it other than uh, some of the statements that were released last night that he was going to call the president a racist and a con man and a liar, you know, stipulated. But uh, I don't know. Did you guys get the Did you guys get the chance to watch it? Is there anything for an audience that cares about the legal and policy developments in this investigation? Did we learn anything? Today? I, is it possible to have a one man boycott? Uh, because I did, I, I did not watch it. I did read some of his testimony, and I think you've summarized it very accurately. There's a huge amount of publicity in it, but I don't think there's any kind of new information. All the things that he said about Trump have been said about him by thousands of people, all that was said prior to the election. None of it, I think, shows anything while he's in office that is different from what we expected. The one tidbit which may have some implication is that Cohen claimed that Trump reimbursed him for the hush money that he paid for the, for the for the call lady, whatever her name was, Stormy Daniels, I think, um, yes. um, that he did that and he paid for that after he was um, in office. Uh, this is, you know, the question, everything has been known. Is that or is that not a campaign expenditure? Is it illegal? All of those issues he doesn't address systematically, but obviously they're the things that are lurking behind it. But we knew all of this stuff anyhow beforehand. So I think, in effect, this was before the Democratic House, I assume, and it just shows you what happens when the Republicans don't control everything. Uh, it's not that they lose elections or votes on this, but what happens is they lose the control of a single forum, uh, which can be turned very powerfully against them when in the hands of the Democrats. So, John, there's a lot of activity here. Is there any is there any progress? I mean, your diagnosis for a long time has been that when the end of the day arrives on this and we get the Mueller report that we're probably looking at more or less nothing, right? At least as regards the president and the case about collusion that people on the left have been trying to make. Is that still basically your gut instinct about this? I think so. I mean, the things that Cohen says, uh, you know, they try to move the story forward on uh, three different fronts. But I I think it kind of fizzles out in terms of law, not in terms of the show and dance of Washington, where, I mean, this is kind of like a blockbuster, especially uh, when you (laughs) read what Trump was saying about African-Americans and so on. But as, as, as Richard says, we already knew that. Trump was a bad personality when people elected him. They shouldn't be surprised that he says racist things. But you know, the three things that he talks about that I think were an effort to claim that he's some kind of John Dean saying that Trump violated the law, they, they provide more context even if they're true. Who knows if they are? Cohen's a convicted liar. But if they're true, they still don't, uh, I think, prove anything. And so I can totally see that Mueller having – had his people interview Cohen, decided to issue the report in a week or this week or next week because Cohen can't be put on the stand and he doesn't have any kind of smoking gun. So the the, the three things, one is that Cohen claims that he listened in on a speakerphone call between Trump and Roger Stone before the WikiLeaks leak of Clinton's emails. And Stone says, oh, I just talked to the head of WikiLeaks and the dump is coming of these emails. And Trump basically says something like, oh, that's nice. Wouldn't that be great? You know, this does not sound like the response of a conspirator when their (laughs) scheme finally comes to fruition. In fact, it sounds like someone who probably doesn't think Roger Stone's telling the truth. Or to, and, and in any event, had nothing to do with yeah, the yeah, nothing to do with, do with right? the release. I mean, look, yeah, you know, I mean, like a nothing burger. But you know, it's a you know, price. Then the second thing, which, which Richard talked about, was the payoffs. To, right, the one thing that's uh, new, but again, it doesn't. I don't think do having to change the legality of it is. It turns out that Trump was paying Cohen to pay off Stormy Daniels and all these women, even while he was president and drawing on his personal account. And so the question still is the same, doesn't change, is is this really a campaign finance violation or is it just (laughs) regular course of doing business in Trump world? If it is where he's paying off people regularly over the years – it's not a campaign finance violation. And not only that, if it turns out he only decided to make it after he'd been elected when the campaign was over, if anything, it speaks ill of his use of public office, but it makes the case that it's a campaign contribution weaker given that the campaign is gone and he did not have knowledge of what went on before evidently the payment was made, or at least that's a little bit fuzzy. I think that 
basically pretty much a nothing burger in terms of the way in which it will play out. But I do think that it's just part of a concerted effort to sort of weaken whatever legitimacy Donald Trump has. What's interesting about it is that there will be different reactions to this in different segments of the public. All those people who loathe Donald Trump will say, see, we've proved to be right. And all those people who like Donald Trump say, see, these people who are hypocrites to the core do similar things to this. After all, look what Hillary got away with. And so all it is is a petty vendetta and we like him even more because he's our man and the fact that he's corrupt doesn't deny the fact that they're corrupt we prefer our man to their man so i think in effect that it will strengthen to some extent his base i think it will probably cost him somewhat in the mushy middle and now there's going to be a new competition whether or not the next boneheaded statement by some major democratic candidate for president will be more important than this uh, maybe a 900 trillion dollar bill or whatever it's going to cost to cure the global warming issue is going to be for the Democrats, but I, in fact, I think, in effect, every time they take their positions, people are going to say, this man, is, these people are going to cost me millions upon millions of dollars in jobs. I can live with the Trump peccadilloes much more than I can live uh, with a major transformation of the United States in which you go out to California on business from New York. You better start work, walking early in the morning. So I, <laughs> I don't think that it's, it's, it's going to be there. It's going to be a very strange campaign. Indeed. But in the end, I think that the substantive issues will be more important than will this kind of stuff. And of course, what's going to happen is we always know Trump is a known quantity. All the Democrats coming forward have never gone through the kind of scrutiny that he has gone through. And we will start to see various forms of irregularity, conflicts of interest, suspect payments, dubious tactics, unfair treatment of employees and so forth. I mean, the stories about Amy Klobuchar, you know, who's a student of mine, you know, I never knew anything about that, and I do think it's relevant that people manhandle their employees. And so the Democrats have the following question. Since so little is known about them, the new information that comes out is going to really move the needle quite dramatically. Whereas with Trump, same old, same old, it's not going to move the needle very much at all. So in a strange sense, I think that it, this will not hurt the president terribly much. It may lower him in the estimation of many people, but I don't see this as a vote loser. I think ultimately this is going to turn on his policies against their policies. And I think, in effect, his chances will somewhat improve over this dimension, not because I think he's doing the right thing on everything, but the howls on the other side make any of his intellectual or political or economic judgments relatively minor in comparison. All right, let me move you guys over to the conversation that's going on right now about the, the border. Uh, we talked about this a bit on the last show, but back then it was just a threat. Now we've got the president actually having declared a national emergency so that he can shift money over to build a border wall. Um, as we're recording this, as of yesterday, the House has already passed a measure of disapproval with a few Republicans. I think it's 13 uh, defecting to join the Democrats. You've already got three Republicans in the Senate who say they'll vote against the president there. Uh, if they get to four, it'll pass. But the president said he'll veto this. So there's no realistic prospect that the veto gets overridden. The numbers just aren't there. So maybe let's start by anchoring this to, to something tangible. Um, John, this is not the president just making some abstract claim of an emergency. This is rooted in a statute that gives the president pretty broad powers under the declaration of an emergency in cases where the military is being used. Is, the, is that statutory authority, in your opinion, sufficient to get him what he wants here? Uh, yes, and I think if it were any other president by Trump, but Trump, there wouldn't even be a controversy over it. I think a lot of people, uh, knowledgeable people, are just like blatantly forgetting that this is about a statute. You look at the arguments in the press on TV, people are claiming Trump is exercising constitutional authority under the pre under as president to seize uh, money out of the treasury and use it to build a wall, much like President Truman, who was stopped by the Supreme Court, who wanted to take over the steel industry during the Korean War, or even Abraham Lincoln, who at the start of the Civil War took money out of the treasury with no statute and used it to deploy the armed forces. But this case is nothing like that because since those times and today, Congress passed a law called the National Emergencies Act in 1976, and it says the president can declare a national emergency. It doesn't define 
what a national emergency is. It just says, when you do it, please notify Congress and the public. So the key thing are these other statutes that have been on the books for quite a long time, which say, if in the event of a national emergency, the president can do A, B, C, or D. Again, this is not about the president's power. This is about what did Congress give him. Uh, Congress could make these decisions itself, but it chose to give it to the president, I think, for good reason. And so in this case, there are a bunch of laws, but the main one is a military construction law, and it says in the event of a national emergency, the president can move money from one military construction project to a new one, which hadn't been authorized before, if it's necessary – and this is a key phrase – necessary to support the armed forces. And so that's not, I think, a huge question of constitutional moment. This is something presidents do all the day, which is interpret a statute, see if it fits, and then apply it. Now, we could have a big argument about whether the border wall – there's an emergency at the border. You know, I, 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 The Supreme Court has never overturned a use of this statute uh, to declare an emergency. It's actually upheld it, the president's uses in the past. Um, so the question is, is building a wall necessary to support the armed forces? Well, I would say we've got troops on the border. I think it's three to 4,000 now. Building a wall would actually mean we'd have, need to have less troops and would help protect the troops that are there. The troops are protecting the territorial integrity of the country. I don't, I, I, I don't see the Supreme Court allowing in, in lower courts to stick their nose in and second-guess what's a national emergency or second-guess what's necessary to support the armed forces. I don't quite agree with that. In fact, I think I strongly disagree with it, but I'm never quite sure. Uh, first of <laughs> all, but let me explain what the ambiguity is. The term emergency has a common meaning, and it may have a somewhat different statutory meaning. In the common meaning, what the term does, it refers to a situation where there's imminent peril uh, to life and property, which requires prompt action without any kind of general review. So it's widely understood that normally the president cannot enter into a military conduct unless the president unless Congress declares war, but if the United States is attacked by somebody else, he doesn't have to wait for the Congress to convene. He could respond immediately to that kind of peril. Uh, When you're dealing with the wall, nothing remotely like that is taking place. We have here a problem which is more or less in steady state, Um, and in fact, if anything, the amount of traffic illegal or otherwise coming across the southern border is smaller now than it was 20 years ago. And so to try to declare that as an emergency, I think, is going to be somewhat of a stretch unless the statute says whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. Whenever the president says it, it is a well-nigh conclusive situation. Or to use a somewhat more technical legal term for what John was pointing at, all you need to have is a weak rational basis to do this. You don't have to be right. It's the president to decide whether or not if you put troops nearby, um, you could also put a wall up to defend The second problem I think that the president is going to have in this particular case relates to the fact that he already had cut a deal with other people. And the deal essentially gave a limited authorization to build the wall, and he signed on to that particular statute. I think it's never been faced as to whether or not the president can declare emergency unilaterally after he signed on to a deal with Congress, which takes a very different approach to the situation. Uh, There is the very respectable argument that the particular generates, dominates the general, and so therefore you can't do it. Uh, Second concern is there have been many cases in which a president has declared emergencies, some of them lasting for long periods of time. Uh, A lot of them have to do with such things as preventing the uh, use of monetary system to shift funds in order to aid terrorist organizations. And I think that certainly is close enough and doesn't have anything like the political controversy of balance of this particular case. The third thing I think that's actually hurt the president, in my view, may well be be decisive against them is how this case squares up against Hawaii, against Trump, which the president won by a 5-4 vote. Um, You'll recall under those circumstances, what he did is he put into place an emergency order, and this was designed to limit the movement of people from certain countries who were thought to be terrorist effects coming into the United States. And the question is, could he do it? 
the opinion was not written on the grounds that, well, Trump had said it, that's all that we need. There are a lot of other stuff that went into this particular case. On the negative side, it was said, well, we can't trust him because of all of his terrible statements about uh, people coming from Mexico and everywhere else. And that means that everything done is hopelessly tainted. Uh, two judges actually thought this was conclusive. Kagan, not Kagan, um, Sotomayor and Ginsburg, uh, Breyer and Kagan looked around and said, boy, I want to hear more. But if I don't hear more, I'm going to assume that my two brethren are right on this thing. And so I'm not going to support this. But the majority, and I think correctly, of Chief Justice Roberts said, look. I mean, he may have made those statements, but since he's been in office, uh, this has been subject to lots of review and scrutiny by key people inside the various departments. The list has been adjusted. Justifications have been given. So it's not just a presidential decision unilaterally. It's essentially an administrative decision in which there are a lot of substantive and procedural checks. And besides, it looked very much like much of the Obama program, which had been put into place or proposed earlier. Uh, In this case, uh, one could say that the president just sandbag. What he does is he doesn't announce that he's going to declare an emergency, gets a deal, and then the next day says, sorry, now I'm declaring an emergency. I think on balance that in this particular case, people will say this is a government of laws, not of men. The the president, in fact, has stretched the definition, has upset the internal relationships with his own administration, has essentially undermined his relationship with Congress, and that he can't get away with it. So, I actually think it's more likely than not uh, that, well, let's put it this way. At the Supreme Court level, there are four votes, I think, on the liberal side, all of which will rule against him. And then, interestingly enough, on the conservative side, uh, there's a kind of a funny alliance. There's going to be Justice Roberts who may say, God, I set out the guidelines in the Hawaiian case. They're not met here. And remember, when you have people like Justice Gorsuch, they're small government types. They're always worried about the abuse of executive power one way or another. He has voted with Sotomayor on some suspicious statements about the police. He's a small government guy. He is not a conservative who works in the deferential tradition. And I think it's quite likely that he can go over and vote the other way on this particular case. And for all I know, Kavanaugh might actually do the same kind of thing because both of these guys have a bit more libertarian streaks in them than conservative streaks. So I don't think, John, is is, is right that this is going to be a 9 nothing thing, if that's the implication. I actually think it's more likely than not, if the thing is challenged judicially, it will lose. The question is how quickly you could get it up to the Supreme Court. And in my doubt, my view, this is something which is going to be quickly decided by a district court judge. They may even skip intermediate stuff. And the Supreme Court will get it within a fairly short time frame, surely a time frame that is sure, shorter than the time that you need to mobilize the resources to do what the president wants. And in fact, he will, of course, do the following. He will first spend the appropriated monies before he goes into controversial territory. So I think, in effect, there's a good chance that this will be stopped. John, Richard mentioned the Hawaii v. Trump case, and this does remind me of that one a little insofar as there is a lot of attention being paid in the press right now, obviously because it's not in the courts yet, uh, to the president's rhetoric, even though it's not in any of the official sort of enabling language in here. But in his speech announcing this, the president said, I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster. And people are pointing to that as him undermining his own case. How likely, John, do you think that is to, to be material in the courts? And should it be? Well, yeah, I, I, th- I, got it. I think Richard's liberal dreams are getting – I'm liberal. I'm sorry. Not liberal. Libertarian dreams, although he agrees with liberals on this, are getting in the way of what has been the traditional practice. Uh, first of all, I think Richard gives a very good uh, definition of what an emergency is and is not if – Richard was the head of the Congress, or Richard was the framers, or Richard was Nancy Pelosi. I love that image. But we have so uh, much. God, I don't. Congress. We have so Congress. Much you know, the thing is, Congress didn't write any definition of what's an emergency in the statute. The interesting thing is, and this goes to your point, because because of that. Whenever this has come up, there's a big case that everyone's ignoring, but this came up to the Supreme Court in 1981 in a case called Dames and Moore versus Reagan, yeah. which was about the Iranian hostages crisis. And this was a case where President Carter issued a declaration of national emergency. The court doesn't review whether there's an emergency in existence factually at all. 
so that's why to, your, to answer your question, Troyes, I don't think the statement is going to matter one way or the other because I don't expect the courts, uh, not the courts, the Supreme Court. You know, who knows what some lower judge, court judge, will do? I expect the Supreme Court to re-examine whether an emergency, in fact exists because it never has before. Instead, it defers to the president's judgment because and the courts have said this there and other places. We can't tell whether there's an emergency. The president has access to information. Some of it's secret. It has, he has access to the people on the ground who are actually telling him what's going on. Courts don't have that. They can't. That's the thing. Is a court going to second guess and insert its judgment instead of those who you know, run the Department of Homeland Security and the Defense Department and ultimately National Security and the Council and the President? I think in this case, the answer is possibly yes. And I've got me see if I get That would be unprecedented, right? No, I mean, they, no, no, no John. Look, there are two look, ways. Hawaii versus Trump. And let me finish. Then I'll be, I'll, I'll be quiet. Hawaii versus Trump, it was the same kind of thing, right? Did the flow of immigrants from these different countries pose a threat to the national security? There again, it's the same question. And actually, the same people who said this is not an emergency also entered briefs and argued in the press that there was no national security threat. The court in Hawaii versus Trump really didn't second guess whether they were a national security threat or not. They pretty much accepted the facts found by the White House. And so I think I think it would be just a big change in years and years of practice to go to Richard's view. I'm not saying that they might not do it. I don't expect them to, but I think when Trump's involved, I think everyone you know gets short-circuited and people vote in ways that they would not normally have. Well, remember, there were four of them who were prepared to vote the other way. And they're not going to shift on this case, which is, I think, harder for the president than Hawaii against Trump. And so the question is, when you have a definition, when you have a term in a statute called emergency, which contains no statutory definition, there are two ways in which you can go. One of them is you could say, look, we don't know what this means. The president says that that's dispositive and binding on everybody else. And the other way to do it is to say, look, we have a statute as a term like emergency. The term has a well-accepted meaning in private law and in much of public law. Uh, this doesn't qualify as an emergency under the imminent peril kind of test that we're talking about. Uh, the president can show no other authority to the contrary. Um, and then when you put all the other stuff about the background history and the remarks that Troy referred to, him saying, I just wanted to do it faster. That can be treated as saying, look, we don't have to give scrutiny to this. We understand there's a wide degree of discretion, uh, but we do not have to accept the proposition that this is a case of absolute discretion and not accepting that. In this case, we go there. And then what you do is you write a decision, uh, which is quite careful to say, we're doing it in this particular case because we think on the record there's no indicia whatsoever of an independent and proper decision by the president. But when it comes to asset seizures of money from foreign nations, which are engaged in terrorist activities, uh, we're going to give a much wider berth uh, than we do in this particular case. Uh, I think that that opinion is one that you could write. And so I don't believe that if you basically pull down the, the absolute protection, which is what John's referring to, it means that every time the president makes a decision, it's going to be second guessed. I would essentially not sign on to an opinion which talked about even intermediate scrutiny. I would talk about an opinion which uses standard, which is often invoked in constitutional law. There's no conceivable ground that the president has mentioned from what we've seen about this emergency. And unless he could come up with something better than the fact uh, that he's already done, we will treat this as though it's a political move on his part to placate his constituency, that it's a breach of his fiduciary duty to the public at large in an effort to try to satisfy some small segment thereof, or we're going to strike it down. I do not think that this is a far-fetched or preposterous case. Um, deference is a very powerful thing, and in some cases it's total. But in many cases, it's not. So let me give one other example. Uh, there's a famous case called Curtis Wright from the 1930s in which it turns out it says, well, the president has complete and absolute control over foreign affairs, no questions answered to contract. And then you get the more recent case on Zibotofsky in which, again, they decide that the president has the whip hand on the question of whether or not to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. But the opinion questioned Curtis Wright and said, you know, we don't think you have to go that far. We're going to do this case, but the absolutist nature is gone. 
Well, if you're going to get rid of it in those kinds of struggles, well, when you have Congress against the president, it seems to me it's quite likely that you're going to get rid of it again. And so I would say, unlike John, I think the odds of the president winning this case are less than 50-50. I got one last thing to to throw in. One briefly. I think you're falling into the trap. Uh, Other people are viewing this as a constitutional conflict. No, I'm talking about a statutory conflict. No. But I'm talking about Curtis Wright, Youngstown. Those are really constitutional level issues. I think this is just about interpretation of statute. But my bigger issue is, come on, if you were on the Supreme Court, you would never join anyone's opinion. You would be always dissenting and concurring alone <laughs> because no one would join you, and you would never join anyone else because you always got something different to say. Now, that's, that's, I, that's the source <laughs> of originality, not the source of weakness. No, I mean, let me put it this way. No, John, I think think you're wrong again, and let me say why. We have a a two-track universe here, and everybody agrees with that. You've got a constitutional universe, and you've got a statutory universe. Uh, But in both of these areas, you still have the question of what's the level of scrutiny that you bring to judge the action of the president, either under the statute or under the Constitution. And if this were a constitutional matter, I believe that you would not have – the president getting 100% discretion on this issue, there would be some degree of low-level but nonetheless consistent rational basis review. Uh, Rational basis review is to the administrative state uh, what essentially um, minimal rationality is under the Constitution, Chevron deference as it were. So I think that the principles of deference apply pretty much the same way whether you're talking about the constitutional emergency or the statutory emergency. And note, in the Constitution, there is no definition of an emergency because there's no emergency term in there. How does it get in? Uh, because one implies a general police power exception to the protection of individual rights. And then when you're trying to figure out when it is that the government can blow up somebody's house, you tend to say, well, they can't do it unless there's some kind of a natural emergency. And what you're thinking about then is a holocaust of one kind or another, a natural disaster, a huge fire, a foreign invasion, and so forth. And some portion of that definition is going to carry over uh, to this particular case. So I, I don't believe the fact that it's a different framework is going to lead to a different strategy on interpretation. So I think on balance, it's more likely that even this court, given the rather sort of arrogant and dismissive way that the president has treated this issue, uh, that he is actually uh, going to lose. Um, this is not a case in which I would think that the, you know, it's a, an open and shut case or a 10 to 1 case. I think the odds are probably 60-40 that the president will lose this case. All right, guys, let me move you from speculative Supreme Court decisions to, to ones that are already in the books, namely this one that we had came out last week on civil asset forfeiture. This is We've talked about this, I think, once before on the show. This is the practice in which law enforcement is able to confiscate and sell items that were supposedly used in the commitment of crimes. It can be a big revenue driver for local law enforcement. Uh, the case in question here before the court was about a guy who got busted in Indiana – selling $225 worth of heroin to an undercover cop. He got a year of house arrest, five years of probation, uh, $1,200 in fees and fines, but also the police seized a $42,000 Land Rover that he owned. Now, uh, the court's ruling, which was unanimous, actually turned on the the broader issue of, of incorporation, specifically as regards the Eighth Amendment. So, John, why don't you start us there? Remind us what incorporation is, what the Eighth Amendment does, and why the intersection of the two is meaningful here. Ah, yeah, this is a very interesting case, uh, just factually. I mean, oh, you know, some drug dealer driving around in a forty-five thousand dollar Land Rover. Since when? Yeah, when did prices fall? I expect like a ninety thousand dollar Range Rover. What kind (laughs) of drug dealer was this guy? Yeah, I'm sure it was bright yellow too. just to live up to stereotype. So this is an interesting question. The Bill of Rights, uh, as originally uh, written and adopted in 1791, doesn't apply to the states. And so uh, this question arose uh, in the early 20th century. How much of the Bill of Rights does apply to the states, and how would it textually? And so uh, the Supreme Court, in a series of decisions, piece by piece, slowly called what we call, quote-unquote, incorporated uh, the Bill of Rights – 
uh, against the states. And uh, it's always been controversial, I think, how the court did it. So the court said that it all gets applied to the states piece by piece eventually through the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. The due process clause says no state shall uh, blah, 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 and then uh, deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The thing that drove conservatives crazy about this was that due process sounds like it's about process. How could the due process clause actually provide the way to incorporate substantive rights, like the one at issue here, uh, excessive fines, when it just talks about process? So conservatives like Bork or Scalia often criticized uh, the Stone Corps and the Vincent Corps and the Warren Court, particularly, for incorporating through this text, which obviously doesn't address real rights. Um, so you still had, even by this year, a few rights here and there that had not been incorporated. And I think this Eighth Amendment one uh, against excessive fines and punishments had always sat there as an obvious one that you would think would be incorporated against the states but never had been. And so in one way, this is kind of cleanup duty. It's not a very long opinion because everyone sort of agrees, you know, why have we incorporated all the other rights in the Bill of Rights and left this one out? That's an anomaly. The only interesting debate is which clause of the Constitution does it? Should we stick to precedent and incorporate it through the due process clause? Well, seven of the nine justices say yes. Uh, Justice Thomas I think has the correct constitutional view. Privileges and immunities. Yeah. Comes through the privileges and immunities clause, not due process. And Justice Gorsuch, you know, has another piece that are saying, well, that may be right. Doesn't make a difference in this case, but that seems like the correct view. Uh, it may be that nothing matters because of choosing one over the other, other than being intellectually faithful to the real text of the Constitution. Well, explain that a bit. I mean, wh why do they think it makes a substantive difference for it to come through privileges and immunities? Uh, well, one interesting thing is uh, it, tell, it might tell you about – and this is what I think the fight really will be about in the future is this goes to the deeper question. Does the Constitution incorporate unenumerated rights at all? Right. This is the fight we have over gay marriage or abortion and so on. Um, if you do it through the due process clause, and you already start from the presumption, you know, the, at least we do that the text doesn't support any of it, then it seems like an unlimited uh, warrant for judicial creativity. Whereas if you make it the privileges and immunities clause, at least then you're conducting historical examination. What did the people who wrote and adopted the Fourteenth Amendment right after the Civil War think privileges and immunities meant, and does that? You know that meaning then place a limit on any kind of future rights that might be addressed that go beyond the Bill of Rights. Uh, I, I actually, Richard is a you know big believer, I, I think, about in unenumerated uh, constitutional rights, and so I think this matters a lot to him because he's a libertarian, and libertarians think there's a lot of other rights that should. Well, be Well, we are extremely forced. dangerous as people in terms of what's going on. <laughs> and so let me sort of indicate uh, what happens, something about the history. First of all, um, this particular clause about excessive fines is part of the Eighth Amendment, the other part of which talks about cruel and unusual punishments in the plural, not the singular. Both phrases are lifted bodily from the English Bill of Rights that had been adopted 100 years before. And the question is, how do you make sense of them? Well, as applied to the federal government is when you want to start. Is this an excessive fine? I actually do not think it's an excessive fine. I think asset forfeiture is not a fine at all. Uh, to my view, what happens is in order for there to be a fine, there has to be some kind of judicial process which determines an offense. And then the excessive provision starts to say that there has to be some degree of proportionality uh, between that which is wrong and that which is done here. And in this particular case, they just seized the darn thing. There wasn't the trial. But the basic position that they have is they get to keep it. Um, it's very obscure as to whether or not there's some after the seizure way in which you can get these things back again. But I would argue that under no circumstances you'd even allow the this, this seizure, particularly since you have all these other means at the disposal of uh, various kinds of fines and imprisonment and so forth uh, to deal with this uh, situation. So I do think, in effect, that there's a serious due process element. And at that point, you know, you don't even have to worry about incorporation because the 14th Amendment has its own due process clause, which on this point 
point, parallels that to the federal government. And so I will put it in a slightly different way. Suppose this wasn't a $42,000 car. Suppose it was a $1,000 heap of junk and that you could impose a fine of $1,200. I would still think that this would be improper as a seizure because you haven't gone through the appropriate process. I don't think that the amount in these things actually starts to matter. So I tend to think of this essentially as a procedural case and not otherwise. And if you go back to all the other asset forfeiture cases that people have argued about for many years trying to get this practice attacked, most of us have done it exactly on these kinds of grounds. There's no hearing, there's no procedures, no protection, and so forth. And it's absolutely impossible to get this thing back after the uh, thing has been taken from the government, even if there may be under some procedures in some places some modest statutory right um, to do it. So I'm very very glad that they did this. It's important to understand that the practice is extremely pervasive, and I think it's thoroughly corrupt, uh, because if you go back to Dr. Bonham's case from a long time ago, what you did is you had a doctor who was disciplined by a board who managed to keep the fine in order to entrench its own coffers, to enrich them. And what uh, Chief Justice Koch said at the time uh, was that you know this was a, a violation of natural law principles because of the bias. You have a judge who's deciding in his own course because if it decides to, to, to convict, it gets the money in question. Well, that's what the police department is doing in this particular case. It's an absolutely biased proceeding, and they're doing it so as to reduce the amount of dependencies that they have to have on budgets that are voted for them by the various state governments and so forth. And I think that that's really a very powerful and troublesome end run around the basic procedural trichotomy that we have in terms of separation of power. And so I think this is long overdue. Uh, and I'm thrilled that it happened. Now, as to privileges and immunities, I, I, I remember the key definition here, it's a funny little term, is it simply derives its meaning from standard use in English law. Privileges means that you're allowed to do certain things that you might not otherwise be allowed to do. Immunities means that you get protection against certain things that would otherwise come. But when you put the phrases privileges and immunities, it covers a whole host of things. But if you go back to the main case on it, Corfield and Coriel, uh, they're talking about mainly substantive rights the right to make a will, the right to enter into a contract, and all sorts of things like that. It's not, privileges and immunities generally doesn't have to do um, with the Code of Criminal Procedure. And the argument here is, Everybody concedes when you do something wrong uh, that you don't have a constitutional right to do it. And then the question is, well, how do you govern the penalty side of this thing? And there has to be some discretion in the government to order severity of crime. But when you look at it, uh, the Bill of Rights has huge numbers of explicit criminal protection, due process, the confrontation clause, unreasonable searches and seizures and admissibility, cross-examination, confession and things like that. I don't think that any of those stuff would have ever been thought to cover the privileges and immunities. It's not because it isn't important. It's because we have basically two kinds of rights. One, the sorts of things that you're allowed to do to keep you out of trouble. And then the procedural rights that you're entitled to when you've done something which should get you into trouble, perhaps even a conviction. But we have much more confidence in the judicial decision, the legitimacy in terms of the public. If we know that you have to run through hoops as a government, it reduces error on the one hand, increases public legitimacy on the other hand. And the question is just how far you move in that direction before you get to a point where people become so protected that you could never convict them no matter how difficult the case, which is why that's a perpetual balancing act that we cannot uh, fully discover. So I don't like the privileges and immunities argument. Excessive fine strikes me as procedural, and I think it's actually less reliable in this case uh, than the old due process arguments, which have also been raised in this connection. John, are you as hostile to asset forfeiture as a as a policy tool as Richard is? Oh, uh, I agree with Richard on the policy. Uh, I'm not sure whether this is not a fine or not. It's really interesting. I never had quite thought of it that way because I, I just assumed it seemed like a fine to me. But I, I'm generally against uh, the government taking property as part of a criminal or civil uh, proceeding uh, as a punishment. Um, particularly here where the guy, right, he's a drug dealer, he served his time in jail. You know, if instead of taking the poor guys – now, 
I don't know what the government wants with a Land Rover. I would only take BMWs or Mercedes. I mean, well, yes, yeah, there's a Land Rover. There are standards in, Bar- yeah. in Brooklyn. I mean, there's it's just going to be in the it's just going to be the shop ball. Uh, John has new <laughs> new constitutional standards, but remember, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, I just think you know you saw, you serve your time in jail. If the government wants to put you uh, you know punish you more, they can put you in jail longer. I don't I, you know I don't see where the government well, and, and he claims. And he claimed as well – I don't know whether this is material to the actual legal analysis, and I don't know whether he proved this, but I think he claimed as well that the vehicle had nothing to do with his, his oh, no, the, in the drug trade. It was from a life insurance payout. Yeah, no, the, 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 the basically the – if you read the facts of the case, it sounds like it comes from – that his dad died, I guess. Yeah, and he got a life insurance policy. But you know, the government. What the government would say was, well, and this is this goes to the history that Richard just alluded to about what where these uh, where these fines come from was that uh, you know he the government would say that oh he was driving the car around when he was doing the drug deals and so it was right. it facilitate just like we take yeah. away your gun when you commit a crime we can take away the instruments. Of the crime, even if it was paid for through some uh, other source, so there there are all these weird cases. Richard, uh, I'm sure, is much more expert on these than I am. This goes back to our unfortunate origins as an English colony, and there were all kinds of lawsuits read about in the early days, where it's like the United States versus the Schooner Exchange, the United States versus the Charming Betsy, where the Supreme Court would hear these cases that were just against ships. Because they were the objects that the government actually managed to grab, and those would spark the lawsuits. And this, I think, this is kind of this weird. These kind of cases are this kind of perverted, weird evolution of those old 18th-century cases, where to get you could have what's called in rem jurisdiction against things rather than people, which we use to, you know, quiz law students on in first-year civil procedure. But I don't think are really that important anymore. Well, they are because an in rem proceeding is. <laughs> The classic in rem proceeding is, is a dispute. I was, over the I was like waving a red cape in front of a ball. <laughs> yes. There's uh, a, a piece of land, and you're unsure as to what its ownership is, and you have no idea of who the people are who are going to contest it. Completely, and so the standard rule is: if you know somebody is a contestant against you, when you bring the action against the RAND, you have to give that person notice, whether he's within or outside the jurisdiction. But if there are other people who are undisclosed and unknown and unknowable to you, you solve that problem by putting public notice, and then they're under a duty to inquire. But these cases actually involve very different proceedings. Some of them, like the privateer cases, is what the federal government would do is to authorize the seizure of SIPs that we're using for trading with the enemy in times of war. And uh, the question would then be as to whether or not when the seizure took place, um, it was within the terms of reference of the general statute, which is quite different from this. But these cases, you know, they do have very, very difficult troubles. These are not sort of instrumentalities of crime in the same way that using a gun to commit a murder is. And sometimes the thing to understand about the forfeiture is oftentimes the asset has actually been used by one person, but in fact it's owned by another. And so you take a simple case. Uh, husband and wife own a car jointly, and the husband uses it for drug traffic or for prostitution. Does the wife have to forfeit her interest along with him? And the answer is yes. And indeed, if it's her car alone and he's soliciting prostitution, it's obviously not done for her benefit. It's done only for his benefit. And she still can find that the car has been forfeited. So what happens is not only do you have the problem in which you're taking something which somebody owns from him without process – but many times you have the case where the property you're taking is owned by a third person who's had nothing whatsoever to do with this particular situation by either expressly or impliedly authorizing it, and you still take it. Uh, so the law of forfeiture has gone way past any kind of sensible boundary line, and I think it's just long overdue. In fact, one of the encouraging things about this case is you know you hear about these fierce divisions between liberal and conservative, and you come up with a case like this, which really does upset past precedent, and it's unanimous. 9-0. And I wish when the Democrats oppose the next nomination to the Supreme Court that they recognize that in many cases the small government instincts with respect to criminal procedure on the right are every bit as strong and alive and alert as they are on the left. I mean, it's healthy to have some 
excessive government powers. It's not healthy to say that we don't want to have a police force at all. And trying to figure out where you draw that line in the middle is something on which I think reasonable people can disagree. And more importantly, it's something on which after they talk one another, they actually might come to some kind of sensible agreement. So I regard this case as a, an important step forward, no matter exactly which doctrinal home you give it under the Constitution. So the final thing that I'll put to you guys today, there is an effort afoot right now to get rid, essentially nullify in a way, the Electoral College, which is something we heard talked about a lot. But this is an effort that's actually making progress. The idea behind this is that a number of state legislatures pass laws to bind their states to cast its electoral votes for the winner of the national popular vote rather than the person who won their state. And this would go into effect once they get – a coalition of states that have 270 or more electoral votes, which is what it takes to win the presidency. Uh, currently, the way this is done right now is 48 states give all of their electoral votes to the, the winner of their state. Nebraska and Maine each give two to the statewide winner and then divvy up the remainder based on victories in um, congressional districts. So 11 states and D.C. have already signed on to this compact. It is just passed in Colorado They'll be number 12. It looks like the governor is going to sign it. That gets them to 181 electoral votes. It's moving through the legislature in New Mexico. That would get you to 186. So still a ways to go. Uh, but, John, I'm curious. Play this forward for me. If, if, if they got to 270 and they tried to act on this, how well would this fare legally? Are the states within their rights to just sort of do an end run around the design of the system? You just uh, answered the question. <laughs> it's 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 it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, and it's not obvious. Uh, I think the way they're doing it in this case, which is part of what's called the National Popular Vote Initiative, I think is unconstitutional. But you could do it, I think, maybe in a different way, which would be okay. So under the Constitution, it's up to the state legislatures to choose the electors. And so most states, as you said, all but you know, all the states have um, delegated that power essentially to popular elections in their states. And so they look at the elections and then they award the electoral votes based on the popular – You know, they didn't have to do that. And at the beginning of the country, uh, some they states didn't. Right. didn't. right. They didn't have an election. They actually chose them themselves. So there's nothing wrong with a state saying, well, we're not going to – we don't even have to have an election. We'll just look at the national vote and we'll give our electors to whoever that is. Uh, but that's not exactly as I understand it what this does. They say that once enough states to compose a majority of the electoral college have decided to award their electors by the national vote, then we're going to do it too. So the, the interesting thing is that how, the first thing is, is the enforcement mechanism we call it. Because if one state did it that way and none of the other states did it, then that's that first state's screwed because right? they're effectively giving up their powers as a state. Whereas everyone else, right, if they still award them separately, regardless of the majority vote, then presidents are going to devote their resources and attentions during the campaigns to the states that hold out, right? So. You have to have in it, at least the way it's drawn up now, some mechanism which only allows the whole thing to come into effect if those states that represent 270 keep a deal to award their elective votes as a group to whoever wins the national vote. Otherwise, you'll just have defection and cheating uh, in order to get people to campaign in your state and spend money in your state and enhance the power of your state. The reason why I think that's unconstitutional is because the Constitution forbids compacts between the states. States are not allowed to make agreements unless Congress approves them. So it seems to me that uh, the, unless I guess you could get Congress to approve this national popular vote initiative, it falls afoul of the compact clause. But that compact is actually critical to the working of the whole deal. Uh, John, that's the most frightening thing you could say. Because, because I mean, you, you get yourself. You get yourself. It's been my thoughts on the compact clause. We, under, <laughs> we understand exactly what's at stake here. 
the Democrats have huge majorities in places like California, uh, which are useless given the fact that there's a state wall around them so they can get 55 electoral votes but no more. And their attitude is if they could essentially get this in, then the extra votes in California swing the outcomes in every other state so you get a popular election, which is exactly what the Constitution did not want because this was not a straight democratic situation. And they thought that the separations were important, A, to protect small states. And I would further add, could you imagine if the national election was sufficiently close that you had to have a nationwide recount similar to the one that you had to have in Florida in the year 2000? Um, It would be an unmitigated disaster. Second point is the way in which the electoral colleges are chosen. Uh, You have an election running and you pledge your delegates. And I do not think that the state legislature can say to the delegates that they're pledged to do to vote against their conscience. So if it turns out that you put in Republican guys and they're elected, I think the said legislation would be wrong. This is very different from what you talked about a moment ago, Troy, which is that you can decide there's going to be a pledge system, but you will do it by congressional district because at that particular point, you're just simply changing the unit in which the electorals are pledged, but you're not basically deciding that this state will cast its vote in favor of somebody else. I do not think, in effect, that the state legislature can tell an elector picked by somebody on the one party or another how to vote. It's just flat unconstitutional. I also think it's a very dangerous design. I kind of like the electoral college because there are parts of me which are strongly anti-majoritarian in the way these things work. I would be much more willing to consider a straight majoritarian popular election if I thought property rights were to some extent secure. Uh, But if you're going to have a system in which they're going to be popular vote elections and essentially anything that Congress wants to do by way of taxation or legislation is going to be okay, uh, you're going to end up looking much more like Venezuela than I dare to contemplate because the sorts of proposals that you hear about the wealth tax, the 70% progressive tax, the gender equity stuff, the guaranteed jobs and so forth, these are recipes for national disasters. Uh, But just on the straight technical point, I think, in effect, what the state can do is to decide whether the pledge takes place at the state level or at the congressional level. The compromises clearly do two votes at the state level to reflect the senators and at the congressional level otherwise. That may not be wise, but it seems to me uh, you have a winner-take-all system within subdivision. But what you're talking about here is you're telling people who win the election that they have to vote in the way that the legislature decrees them to do so. That's just flatly permissible and manifestly unconstitutional. John, let me have you close this out today, picking up on the, the practical argument that, that Richard was just making and, and seeing where you are on this. The, the most common practical arguments you hear in favor of the Electoral College, you don't hear Richard's about the recount very often, although it's, it's a pretty powerful one, but the, the, the most common ones that you hear is that it forces the candidates to go to smaller population centers than they otherwise would. Uh, I think you'd also make the argument that in most cases, the Electoral College simply ratifies the popular vote. And in the cases where it doesn't, it essentially says that the the tie goes to the person who can assemble a a broader coalition of states, which isn't a terrible tie-breaking mechanism. We've had – I looked this up in anticipation of this conversation. We've had 58 – Wait, wait, wait. No one's looking anything up to get ready for this. That's unfair. (laughs) That's cheating. Well, I was curious about this number. I I knew roughly what it was, but we've had 58 – presidential elections in American history, and 53 have gone to the winner of the popular vote. But, okay, so the counterargument you hear, and this is actually a counterargument that was made by several presidents in the 19th century, is that nowadays this thing is kind of a vestigial tale, that, as you mentioned, the original design of the Electoral College was so kind of explicitly undemocratic and, and presumed that the electors would choose a president at their discretion rather than just sort of transmitting the votes of their state, that at this point, all you're really doing is kind of needlessly adding an extra layer of of complexity. How would you parry with that argument? Actually, this is really interesting. Richard and I have been having this debate across many issues now today where I think Richard's uh, view is – more faithful to some kind of spirit of the Constitution, but not the text. Because I agree. I, I agree with him that the framers did not want to have Congress picking the president, and they didn't want to have direct popular vote on the president. But they didn't bar the states from using the Electoral College to achieve those ends if they wanted to. Um, 
But that, just put that aside for a second. I, I've actually written a piece uh, defending the Electoral College. There are very few actual scholars who defend the Electoral College. I, I actually am going to publish it in a law review later. So I thought about this a lot. I looked up all these same things you did, Troy. And so the interesting thing is the defense of the Electoral College that the framers provided aren't really about this counting problems that you mentioned or you know, having a final vote where we know who won, not having recounts nationwide. Those are more sort of, I think, modern concerns. Right. Um, they, what, it's interesting. One is they clearly wanted to give the states a stronger hand in selecting the president than what will come about. And so the, the things you mentioned, Troy, are kind of modern manifestations of that, you know, that presidents have to go to a lot of states. They can't just, you know, campaign in the top right. cities in the country, that you have to put together coalitions of states that just go beyond a single region. Um, those are not necessarily what the framers thought. I, I, so they they kind of thought that the state, again, that this, because of the technology at that time, it would not be possible for there to be people of national prominence. So they thought if there were such a person like a Washington or maybe a Jefferson, then the electors in all these states, they would know about them anyway, and then you wouldn't have this problem. They would vote for the person. But then they, what they thought was going to happen was that there would be these people in different regions who would be great leaders or potential candidates for uh, the presidency. You would probably see states using their electoral votes to cluster around these people uh, and use their votes that way. But they really thought that a lot of the elections would go to the House because, as you mentioned, Troy, I think if you don't get a majority in the Electoral College, then the election gets thrown to the House and the states vote by delegation. Which in the house crazy. they don't vote by a number so that right. actually this is the election the of 1824 yeah, right. that accentuates the power of the states even more so the they power of wyoming is what it yeah is. yeah and so they would they would th- they thought that that's really where the presidency would probably be picked more often so they were kind of they were actually wrong because the electoral college as you say troy actually has yielded the winner you know essentially in almost all cases except for right, the um and then also the election of um 1876 uh, was you know not handled uh, by electoral college majority. So it's really uh, it's really interesting. The framers were their project their un- understandings what would happen were wrong. Now the third thing is last point I'll make is that even so, uh, all these things uh, we've said about the electoral college being pro federalism, pro states, pro regional. The framers uh, were actually creating a system which was more democratic than what the original drafts of the Constitution had. The original drafts of the Constitution fluctuated between um, just letting Congress pick or um, letting the states pick or the Senate pick. So all of these choices were rejected in the end because the framers did want to create a separate method for the president to be chosen that was basically done by some kind of elections that the president would have some claim to representation, representing the people rather than Congress. That was the, that's the worry they really wanted to break was that we would have a parliamentary system where the president was under the thumb of Congress. Yeah, I, I have just one last set of remarks because we've sure. actually probably done our hour. One, the term electoral college is very instructive because the original intention under these circumstances was that the slates might be chosen by the states, however, and then they would, the college would be like the College of Cardinals. It would be a deliberative body which would have to come to a conclusion. And this is a case in which the Liberation is an absolute. Can nightmare. I can I say that that is a college both Richard and I would never be able to get into. Well, no, I no, I think I do <laughs> we can get well. into lots of colleges, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, but the college. I, of I graduated get from Columbia, uh, <laughs> uh, so but no, but I think in effect what happens is people realize that deliberation in that sense would lead to so much betrayal and slippage that they made it pledge delegates, and, and I think that constitutional convention has lasted for a very long time, and that's the convention that people are trying to get rid of here uh, by saying, in effect, that the legislature can tell the elector, these these college people, how to vote. The people who selected them cannot. And I regard that as a massive, indefensible, incomprehensible change. Um, and let us do one thing. When you do have changes with the popular vote, remember, these are the elections that are taking place where the electoral college rules are in place. So take the last election. Hillary Clinton made the most bonehead decision imaginable when in the last day she decided to campaign in California to run up her cop 
popular vote margin to get what she thought a political mandate uh, when in fact she knew it was the electoral college. Donald Trump could have gone to Texas or to some other place with strong Republicans and try to turn out the vote, but he understood that he's better spending his time in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Ohio, and so forth. So the popular vote, if you're not trying to maximize popular vote, is not an accurate indicator of what the popular sentiment is. And in fact, if we switch to this system, uh, every Democrat would never leave New York. Every Republican would never leave, you know, deep red cities in the South or or in the far West or whatever it is, uh, because what's the point of campaigning in Texas if you're a Democrat to try to tip it if you can turn increase the turnout in New York from 40 to 60 percent and know that 85 to 90 percent of it is going to be Democratic. So there would be a complete transformation. And then when it comes to the count, you better believe it. If you know that what you do is going to influence what's going to happen somewhere else, there's every incentive to cheat in New York if you think you could trip that balance or in Texas in the opposite direction. What happens when you have the Electoral College is a firewall so that cheating doesn't get you anything so that you don't do it. Uh, If you're trying to figure out the institutional implications of this, it is a total nightmare. What we have is an imperfect set of proxies. It works fine. The Democrats are upset the fact that their candidate was silly enough in the way in which they ran her campaign that she lost out. We do not make major institutional changes in the back door by these kind of ad hoc state decisions. If you want a constitutional amendment, there's a way to do it, and you do it. Uh, You set it all in the first thing, Troy, when you said this is a workaround. Workarounds and circumvention are not part of respectable and legitimate constitutional politics. All right, fellas. That is our show, gentlemen. Thank you, as always. Thanks to our regular producer, Scott Immergut, and our pinch-hitting producer today, the great E.J. Hill. He's more than just Photoshop, ladies. And Yay. of course, th- <laughs> thanks. Yay. Thanks, of course, to uh, our great listeners. Remember to help us out by rating the show on iTunes. We will see you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. On a warm summer's eve, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep. So we took turns of staring Out the window at the darkness The boredom overtook us And he began to speak He said, son, I've made a life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what the cards were By the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind my saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle And he drank down my last swallow Then he bombed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet And his face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold it You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done Ricochet Join the conversation Every gambler knows That the secret to surviving Is knowing what to throw away 